Good morning, everyone, and welcome to a special edition of A Vision for You. Today is Sunday, August 27, 2017. The share IDs for Friday, August 25th are the following for the 7 a.m. Eastern Big Book Study, 10351. And for the 10 a.m. Eastern Big Book Study, 10353. This morning, A Vision for You presents Freedom from Bondage. All of us have come to this program as a result of the suffering, frustration, and despair we experienced in the disease of compulsive overeating. As real compulsive overeaters, we are bodily and mentally different from others. We have an abnormality of the body, an allergy, Once we put our trigger foods into our body, it reacts in a way that demands more of the same. Our very cells demand to be satisfied beyond our ability to control it. And we have an abnormality of the mind. We suffer from a mental obsession so cunning, baffling, and subtly powerful that no amount of human willpower can break it. This experience of powerlessness becomes our driving force of desperation to be ready and willing to do anything which will free us from the bondage of our disease. With us today to share her experience, strength, and hope and present freedom from bondage is Stephanie L., a recovered compulsive overeater from California. And it's with great pleasure that I welcome Stephanie to the line. Good morning. Stephanie. Good morning, everyone. Um, this is Stephanie L., and I am a recovered compulsive reader from Southern California. And I just want to um, thank you, Leah, for uh, the opportunity to share my experience, strength, and hope. And I just have to say that I am <laughs> a little nervous this morning. Um, you know, I, I started listening uh, to the Vision for You uh, podcast. I never listened live because we didn't have uh, a meeting that, um, you know, I'd have to get up at four in the morning to dial in and I'm in um, Southern California. So, um, you know, I used to listen to the podcast and um, I was in the middle of a three and a half year relapse and I used to dial, you know, I used to call and listen to the podcast and um, I'd listen to people share and it gave me hope gave me hope that maybe someday I'd be able to put down the food again too. So um, a little nervous to be sharing on the line this morning, Um, but I'm reminded that my higher power is with me and my higher power is guiding me and my higher power is going to put the words in my mouth that will hopefully, hopefully um, someone will hear something um, that uh, will help them this morning. And I also want to preface this with that I'm probably going to say some things that will piss some people off, too. And I just want to um, put out there that, you know, this is um, my experience and um, with uh, this awful um, disease and my experience with my recovery from this disease. Because today um, I live free of um, that awful obsession and I am free from that bondage and that's why I wanted to talk about um, that this morning. Um, so to, to get started, just to get some of the numbers out of the way, I've been in Overeaters Anonymous for going on 12 years. Um, I wish I could say that I have 12 years of abstinence and that is not my story. 
my story has periods of recovery and periods of relapse. And by the grace of God, this program um, and these 12 steps, um, I have a year and nine months of um, abstinence, um, which is an amazing um, miracle because my life had gotten really, really bad. Um, my top weight is 245 pounds, and um, I'm maintaining um, over 100 pound weight loss, which is great. And um, you know, it's wonderful to be in a healthy body, um, but it's great because the weight loss is great, but the freedom is, um, you know, the freedom is amazing. Um, so what I thought I would do is I just want to spend a little bit of time about what it was like um, and then really spend, um, you know, the bulk of the time talking about, um, you know, my, uh, my uh, journey back from relapse. So I have had a problem with food from, gosh, you know, food has been a huge part of my life since my earliest memories. Um, I never felt like I fit in. I always felt, um, you know, I guess, the, I guess the best way to describe it is I always felt wrong. Um, I felt like I didn't fit in in my own family. Um, I always felt like a third wheel. And I always tried to figure out, even at a really early age, um, who you wanted me to be. Because my greatest fear um, was that if you knew who I really was, um, you wouldn't like me, you wouldn't love me, and you would go running as fast as you can. So I discovered that um, I could um, escape um, into um, reading. I was um, an avid reader at a really, really early age. Um, and um, eat, um, you know, grab whatever I could grab, sit in my room um, and escape from everyone and everything into some kind of a fantasy life. Um, and I didn't have, um, I wasn't overweight as a child. Um, it really, the weight really started packing on when I was in high school and went through puberty. Um, I, I was also, um, it's so funny because I hear this quite often when I hear speakers um, said very similar thing, you know, I wasn't a boy child, but I always felt huge and fat and bigger than everybody else. Um, I come from very short Italian people. Um, I was born in, um, Brooklyn, New York, and, um, I was always a little taller than everybody else in my family. Um, I still am to this day, even my own daughters are a couple inches shorter than me. But I always felt like I towered over everyone and I was bigger than everyone. And my father used to say to me, you know, um, he used to call me chunky and he used to pinch, you know, the baby fat or whatever it was. And he used to tell me that, you know, uh, men don't like fat women. They don't marry fat women. And um, that was kind of, you know, what became my self-worth was, um, you know, how big I was. And I, I, I look at pictures now and you know i was just a healthy normal kid um and um you know it's funny because um even to this day even after losing the weight that i've lost i i can sit in a room and still feel like the biggest person in the room but the really cool thing about that today is i can identify that as one of the lies that my my head and this disease tells me and this disease tells me a lot of lies 
so, you know, the pounds started packing on. I became, you know, I could hear a professional dieter. Um, one thing I could do was I could certainly lose that weight. But the problem was as soon as I lost that weight, I wasn't even at that weight for like, I don't know, 30 seconds. And the weight would start packing on. So I'd lose all the weight. I'd find some crazy diet, lose all the weight. And then um, I'd buy a whole new wardrobe. And then, you know, I could have a, you know, well, I, I deserve this. I've been so good for so long and it's okay. I'm never going to get big again. I'm never going to get gain the weight. This is the last time. This is it. Um, and there I would go, you know, I take that first bite and I didn't understand. I didn't know, you know, um, my biggest, the biggest question was why, you know, why do I do this? Why do I gain, you know, why can't I be like that person who, you know, is thin and their life is perfect and everything, um, you know, they've got everything they want. Um, what's wrong with me? I didn't understand what was wrong with me. I didn't understand what was wrong with me even after years of being in OA. I knew that there was a problem. I knew I was different. Um, I knew it wasn't normal. You know, um, I was a single mom with three daughters and, um, I had to support those kids and I, I worked really hard, um, to support them financially. I didn't have any help other than my parents. Um, but I knew there was something wrong with me that every night I put my kids to bed and I would tell myself I wasn't going to eat. I've already had dinner you know, I'm done for the day, I'm done eating. And yet, within 30 minutes after those kids were asleep, I'd be standing there outside the fridge saying, no, 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 I'm not going to do it, I'm not going to do it. Oh, no, no, wait, let me just look. Let's just see what's, what's, what's in there. And then before I knew it, I'd be sitting on the couch in front of the TV binging again. And God forbid one of those kids came downstairs and caught me doing that because this was my dirty little secret. The big mystery always was, gosh, you know, either I was 30 pounds heavier or 30 pounds lighter. If you didn't see me for a few months, I always looked different. And people couldn't understand how I gained weight because I always ate healthy. I never binged in front of everyone. But it was my dirty little secret. This is what I did every night. It was the only way that I could calm down and decompress. And just, you know, I worked hard all day. I took care of these kids. This was my time. You know, little, you know, did I know that this wasn't an issue of willpower and it wasn't a moral issue. The issue was I have a disease that wants me dead. And as time progressed and even after finding a way, you know, this disease has gotten, has gotten worse um, as I've gotten older. Um, so, you know, um, my, I was a, uh, wasn't that great of a mother. I was always at work or when I was at home, um, I was binging. Um, I would tell my kids, um, hey, let's go to the movies. And they'd be, you know, sometimes they'd be like, no, mom, I don't want to go to the movies. I don't want to see that. And they're like, we're going to the movies. And um, we'd go to the movies so that I could binge on popcorn and, you know, candy. And it was always surrounding food. We went to restaurants where I wanted to eat. We went to, you know, we bought food in the grocery store, binge foods for me in the grocery store. They would say, I don't want that, Mom. And I'd say, yes, you do. 
it was always about me. Um, so after a series of events in my late 30s, after, you know, this cycle, and like I said, I don't want to spend a tremendous amount of time on, on that part, um, you know, I ate a lot. I gained and lost 100 pounds more than once. I was in a bad marriage. I ate at my husband. And one day I looked at him and said, you know, in my mind and said, I am going to lose 100 pounds and I'm out of here. And when I set my mind on something, man, can I make it happen? And I really think that that has been a big issue for me, um, you know, in this program is um, I was I was brought up to believe that you work hard. You never let them see you sweat. Um, you know, the the outside persona is the most important thing. So, you know, it's always very important to me to be successful, to never show any weakness whatsoever. And that has been, you know, one of the reasons I believe that, you know, I have had a hard time um, getting this program, this very simple program of recovery that is outlined so beautifully in this book that I'm holding in my hand that is duct taped. I have a friend, his book was falling apart and I refused to, to get rid of this book and get a new one because it's got my notes and it's got, you know, my abstinence dates written in both covers and crossed out a million times because I realized, you know, I'm going to write it in the book and that's going to make it happen as if I have some special power that, you know, because it's written in the book, this date, abstinence date is going to stick. I hold on to this book, this old, tired, duct-taped book, because, because it's a reminder of where I've come from and, you know, the pain and, um, you know, because I'm not going to change behavior and do these things unless I am in a tremendous amount of pain. I am not going to show weakness and put up the white flag and surrender because I was taught not to do that. I've had to unlearn that, you know, over the years, but I'm not going to do that unless I'm being drugged through the mud and on the brink of just complete and total desperation. And, um, and that's, and that's where this disease has brought me. And, you know, um, and I'm grateful that that disease brought me to that place because my life today is nothing, nothing like the life that I'm describing. So, so all this time, you know, I can't figure out what's wrong with me. And then I come, I find Overeaters Anonymous through my middle daughter um, had some issues when she was, you know, since she's been 13, she has had issues with drugs and alcohol. And through um, fighting for her to get well, I found a 12-step program and I found Overeaters Anonymous. Um, but still, you know, coming into these rooms and being in these rooms for a while, I still didn't understand. And I just want to refer to page XXVIII in the doctor's opinion. And this is when the light went off. Why do I eat? I even have it written in my book. Why do I eat? I eat because men and women, you know, they drink essentially because they like the effect produced by alcohol. The sensation is so elusive that while they admit it is injurious, they cannot, after a time, differentiate the true from the false. To them, their alcoholic life seems the only normal one. They are restless, irritable, and discontented unless they can again experience the sense of ease and comfort which comes at once by taking a few drinks. And that is why I eat. I eat because I'm relieved of the frustration, the resentment, 
just the sheer um, irritability and discontentment of my life, of the person I am. I, I eat because I can't be alone with myself. I eat because I can't look in the mirror and be okay with the person looking back at me. I eat because, you know, compulsive overeating relieves me of myself. And then, you know, as it says here, you know, their alcoholic life seems the only normal one. Well, my compulsive overeating life seems the, the only normal one. Sitting on a couch, laying there with the, with the, the shades drawn, binge-watching TV, binge foods all around me, stains on my shirt, chocolate stains on my shirt, laying there, not answering the phone. I have three adult daughters today, and for three and a half years when I was in that relapse, I very rarely answered the phone. I destroyed the relationships with these young women, which, by the grace of God, is not my story today. I am free from that couch, from that bondage, from that need to to hurt myself, to hurt my body um, with with food. Um, and I learned that this isn't a moral issue. It's not because I'm 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 not as good as the person sitting next to me. It's not because I didn't try hard enough. Because I used to always wait for the switch to go off. You know, when I hit 180, I'm gonna stop, and then I'd hit 180. When I hit 190, I'm gonna stop. I'm never gonna be over 200. I'm gonna stop. I was over 200. When I hit 220, oh my God, I'm 220 pounds. You know, now. You know, at that weight, now I'm hiding in the house because I don't want people to see me. I'm, I'm, I'm trying to hide the weight. And the one thing about this disease, we wear it. You know, people can tell. People know there's something wrong. What's going on with her? I had a job and I gained 70 pounds in my first year in that, my last job. Um, and, like, they couldn't see something was wrong with me. Um, you know, it was absolutely insane. So I know now that my problem is, you know, through reading the doctor's opinion, I have an allergy of the body and an obsession of the mind that I didn't create, okay? But now I know that I've got this problem. I know that when I put those foods in my mouth, which for me are white flour and sugar, that my allergy is going to kick in and I'm not going to be able to stop. The minute I put that food in my mouth, and it's not just white flour and sugar, I have a problem with quantity. I cannot, um, I cannot overeat without that allergy kicking in, okay? So my only hope, as it says here on page XXX in the doctor's opinion, is entire abstinence. The food has to be down. I have lost the right to eat sugar, white flour, or, you know, compulsively overeat. And because of that, you know, I weigh and measure. And like I said, I, I'm, I don't know if I'm going to offend anyone, but I'm going to, you know, this is my story and this is what, what works for me. But I have to be extremely clear about what my abstinence is. And if I eat, you know, white flour, sugar, or if I overeat, I have broken my abstinence. It has to be clear. It has to be black and white. The food, I have to do the food perfectly, okay? Now, 
progress, not perfection with the steps. And, you know, I'll talk about that in a moment, but there is no progress, not perfection with my food. The food has to be down. I have experimented with that for many years. And um, in fact, you know, I had three years of abstinence at one point. I had two years of abstinence at one point. But it tells us here in this book that if I fail to enlarge my spiritual life and I stop doing this work, and that's exactly what happened. You know, I had lost a ton of weight. Um, I had, like I said, you know, years of abstinence and, um, you know, free from, free from the obsession. And all of a sudden, life got big. I got the job. It's like, you know, in Bill's story, I had arrived. Um, I got the big job that, um, you know, I had been working towards my entire career, the title, the position. I worked in the food industry. Um, and um, all of a sudden, you know, I can't go to as many meetings because I live in, you know, Anaheim, California, and I'm commuting to Santa Monica, which for any of you who live in California and know LA traffic, that could be, it's 40 five miles, um, but it could take me two and a half hours each way. So I, I don't, I can't go to my normal meetings. Um, I start putting the job, um, you know, they hired me to do a job. I have to look a certain way. Um, I work for a vegan restaurant company. Everyone is fit. Everyone is thin. Everyone's wearing the right clothes. Um, I'm a leader in this company. And all of a sudden that became more important than everything else in my life. Um, and, you know, I stop weighing and measuring my food because I can't do that in front of them. I start eating food in our restaurants, you know, agave, agave isn't sugar. Agave is okay. You know, I start rationalizing. I'm not working the steps. I'm not going to meetings. My sponsees are starting to bother me when they call and it doesn't happen right away. You know, um, for me, the relapse happens between my ears well before the food um, goes in my mouth. And um, one day, uh, the CEO of our company says to me, Stephanie, you've got to taste this carrot cake. And I say, oh, no, you know I can't. I don't eat sugar. I can't do that. And he says, how can you do this job if you can't taste the food? And all of a sudden, I'm standing there. And I'm thinking, oh, my God, he's going to fire me. Oh, my God, I'm going to lose this job. Oh, my God, oh, my God, what's he going to think of me? Not once did I think I'm going to die if I eat this carrot cake. It never occurred to me. That thought, that, that um, intuitive thought, um, I couldn't hear my higher power anymore. And I looked at him, and what this man thought about me was more important than taking that first bite or then not taking that first bite and the pain and, you know, the entire, the lifetime of pain. Um, it didn't, it wasn't even a thought. And I took that bite and um, that was it because this book tells me I have an allergy of the body and obsession of the mind. And I took that bite and the allergy kicked in and the obsession came back. And I was in a three and a half year relapse. I ended up um, gaining a tremendous amount of weight. That same CEO said to me, you're gaining weight. You know, we have to, you know, we have an image. I mean, it, 
I was so embarrassed. Um, and I, you know, it got to the point where I couldn't do that big job. Um, and I blamed them and I blamed him. And of course, you know, I'm back in the old thinking and, um, you know, it, it, it tells, it tells me in this book, um, you know, and there is a solution, you know, on page 21, um, I become Dr. I am Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. You know, it says here, his disposition while drinking resembles his normal nature, but little. He may be one of the finest fellows in the world. You have to let him drink for a day, and he frequently becomes disgustingly and even dangerously antisocial. And that's how I became. My big world that, you know, recovery had given me became very, very small. And there I was again on the couch at the end of the day watching, you know, TV, binging my brains out, gaining weight, wanting, you know, feeling awful, oozing with self-pity, still going to meetings. The one thing that, um, you know, I have done since I walked into OA was I'm in meetings, uh, whether I'm eating or not, I know that there is no hope for me um, outside of um, these, these rooms of OA. Um, so I ended up leaving that job, getting another job. And of course I blamed them. Um, not the fact that they hired me to do a job that I wasn't doing well. Um, and then this, um, this crazy thing happened. My, my father passed away and, um, I guess it's not a crazy thing because it's part of life. Um, but that through, I was, I had been in relapse for a couple of years and I wasn't eating the entire time. I'd get like a week and then I'd eat for two days. And then at one point I got 90 days and, um, you know, lost a few pounds. So, you know, it was a constant back and forth, back and forth. Um, you know, I was at a, um, I was at, um, a convention, an OA convention recently and, um, I was looking at, you know, like the people at the convention. It was like, oh, she sponsored me and she sponsored me and he sponsored me. And I worked with that person. I had so many sponsors during those three and a half years. I was constantly fighting to find the solution because I'm a fighter. I don't give up, right? Um, I need that food plan. and Let me try that. And, and wait, you know, I was constantly looking for someone to fix me. I had a head full of big book. I had tasted and experienced recovery, but I couldn't see the forest through the tree. I couldn't find my way back. Um, and I don't know, that middle world is just, is just such an absolutely um, awful, awful place. So my father passed away and that threw me into an even worse, um, worse place. I got another job. Um, my life, and I'll talk about just how small my life got and then what happened, but at one point, my husband is in this program, and I couldn't eat at home, Um, so on the weekends, I would sit in my car in front of the grocery store. I'd go in, I'd get bags of crap, and I'd sit in my car in front of the grocery store with my Kindle, and I would read for eight hours. I would sit in the car and eat until it was dark until I could sneak back into the house, continue eating and pass out at work. I was driving from location to location and binging. Um, cause that's my job. I got to taste the food. And, um, I became, um, 
you know, it got to the point where if this is what life was going to be like, I didn't want to breathe anymore. I became suicidal. Um, I kept thinking this is going to be my bottom. I got in a car accident because I was uh, trying to open a box of cookies uh, as I was driving to an OA meeting. Um, and every time something would, something would happen, I was sure that was my bottom. And then I was hospitalized for depression. I was in a, I was actually in a, um, OA meeting and this, this really smart man in the meeting came up to me afterwards and he said, you know what, what you're doing isn't working. And he had the courage to say that to me, um, because in OA, we tiptoe around each other. We love each other to death. And, um, it is really a problem in this program. People were tiptoeing around me. No one was willing to tell me the truth. And the truth was, you're not getting better. Something's got to change. And you need help. And um, after that conversation with, I call my angel, um, I, I had to get help. And as I was in the hospital and I watched my husband, um, my husband leave, um, I thought, this is my bottom. This has got to be it. And it, I was there for three days. I went home, and guess what I did? I binged, and I binged the next day and the next day. And then on October 31st of 2015, I was sitting in a meeting, and it, I had one of those moments of, this is it. I'm going to die. If I eat again, I am going to die. I had no ideas. I had no, um, I didn't know what to do. For the first time, and it's kind of like Bill talks about in his story, I who had achieved such amazing things, I who was so strong, I who had had years of recovery, um, I don't have the answer anymore. I just don't know. I don't know what to do. And people ask me, you know, on outreach calls, what did you do? How did you get out of it? How did you come back from relapse? And, you know, I wish I had something in a bottle that I could hand you and say, drink this, or a pill, or, or a formula, or um, do this, 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 and this. Because I used to ask people also, what did you do? Tell me what you did. Tell me, come on, get, get. what is the secret? There is no secret. There is, was no secret for me. There was no special formula. What it was, what happened to me is I had to be in a place of such pain and um i had to get to that 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 point of desperation um because i am unable to stop on the basis of self-knowledge you know i had a lot of knowledge about myself as a compulsive overeater i knew the book i could quote the book but i couldn't stop i had to get to that point of believing you know like it says in page 53 right um, it says on page 53 that when we become alcoholics crushed by a self-imposed crisis, we could postpone, we could not postpone or evade. We had to fearlessly face the proposition that God, either God is everything or else he is nothing. God either is or he isn't. What was our choice to be? And in that moment, I knew that I was out of options. And my prayer was, I don't know. And it sounds like such a simple, what? What do you mean? I don't know. That was the moment for me. It was an honest, humble prayer to my higher power, which I choose to call God. God, I don't know. I don't know what to do. I can't fix this. 
I am broken. I am going to die. Take me. Take all of me. Do what you want with me. Whatever you say, God. Uncle, I, I, I just don't know. And something happened. You know, it was a spiritual experience. Um, I texted someone who had helped me previously. I was sitting in the meeting, and I texted her and said, will you help me? And, you know, this was someone who never gave up on me. She had sponsored me previously, and every couple weeks she would reach out to me and say, I'm here, um, you know, call me if you want to talk. And, and I swear my, my God said, okay, go ahead and text her and ask her for help. And I did. And she said, of course. And I never thought, if, if you would have told me that day, that would be my first day of abstinence. It was my belly button birthday, you know, October 31st of 2015. Halloween is my birthday. And I never, I, I would have been like, yeah, right. Yeah, right. I called her later and, um, you know, uh, I've talked to her every day for the last year and nine months um, since that day. And um, that's when the magic started. And I can't make that magic start, you know. Um, that magic, um, that magic came from God. Um, so we started working the steps right away. And, you know, like I said before, the food has to be down. I cannot, I am not awake. Um, I cannot work the steps if I'm in the food. The food had to be down. Um, she asked me to go see a nutritionist to get a food plan. Um, you know, my brain is broken when it comes to food. How can I decide what my food plan is going to be? And this was the first time that I, um, someone had asked me to see a nutritionist. And I had been on many food plans in OAI. People told me what to eat. I had read the Dignity of Choice pamphlet. But this was the first time someone said, you got to go see a nutritionist because I'm not going to tell you what to eat. Um, and that was pretty, that was a pretty cool thing. Um, today I have a food plan that is mine and nobody else's. It's different than my sponsors and then the people that I sponsor. It is specific to me, to my weight, to my activity level, to my, um, you know, nutritional needs. And, um, you know, I stick to that food plan. I weigh and measure everything that goes in my mouth. If something changes, I call someone and, um, I uh, call another sponsor and I talk to them about, you know, hey, this is what's going on. And I listen to what they tell me to do because I have lost the ability to make choice, to make decisions about my food. I've lost that right. If I ever really did have that because, you know, um, I am recovered today, but I will never be cured. I am very clear today that I have no defense against that first compulsive bite. And on page 24 in the italicized paragraph, it tells me that. It tells me the fact is that most alcoholics, for reasons yet obscure, have lost the power of choice in drink. I have no choice once I take that first bite. Our so-called willpower becomes practically non-existent. We are unable at certain times to bring into our consciousness with sufficient force the memory of the suffering and humiliation of even a week or a month ago. We are without defense against the first drink. And I had a sponsor once who made me write that on index cards and put it on mirrors and, you know, read it three or four times a day. And great, I did that, but it didn't stop me from eating um, because 
I can't fix this problem on my own power. I need a power greater than me to solve my problems. And in that moment, in that meeting on October 31st of 2015, I surrendered to that power. I didn't know who it was. I mean, I had, I had been brought up um, Catholic, and um, I grew up with a, a fearing God. Um, I believe that God was waiting for me to make a mistake. Oh, God is watching. Steffi, God is watching. Don't do that. God is watching you. Oh, God is watching you. Oh, I was scared to death of God. Scared to death. How can I surrender to a God who wants to heart, who who wants to punish me? Um, you know that was a real big problem for me for a long time, um, until I read in the big book, I can pick my own God, I can choose my own God, um, as long as it is a power greater than me. There is a God, and I'm not it, and that's all I need to know about my God. You know, um, there is nothing. I can do to stop myself from taking that first bite. Believe me, I've tried. There's nothing. My human power will not fix this problem. I had to turn to something bigger than me um, and plug into that power. Um, And when I did in that moment, the obsession was gone. And I can't explain that. How do you go from that place of, you know, I was living to eat. All I did was hide and eat, not answer the phone. You know, um, I, was, I was a slave, you know. I was, an, I was a prisoner to this disease. How does one go from that to completely free of the obsession overnight? I can't explain it other than, you know, that great reality that has deep within me, that has been with me, that I couldn't find because of selfishness and um, self-will and all of these ideas I had about who I am and who I should be. And, you know, I got to tell you, the set-aside prayer has been huge for me. You know, um, God helped me set aside everything I think I know about myself my brokenness, my spiritual path in you, for an open mind and a new experience with myself, my brokenness, my spiritual path, and especially you, God. Because, you know, even, you know, in that moment of surrender, I still had a, you know, con- you know a conception of, of God and of this program, and I had worked the steps, and I had to forget everything, everything I knew about this program, my God, who I was. Um, and, you know, the amazing thing is, um, and I've heard speakers say this before, you know, it's like working the steps is like, you know, it's like emptying all of this crap that I have been carrying around inside of me um, my entire life, you know, so that my God can fill it with new and beautiful things. My life today looks nothing like it did two years ago. Everything had to change. Everything. Um, and everything did change. Um, you know, my sponsor 
threw me into the steps right away. I, I mean, you know, it, 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 it doesn't say in the book, um, work step four when you're ready or make the amends when you're feeling comfortable. Um, it doesn't say that. The, the directions are very, very clear in the big book. You know, put, put the food down, which, you know, I had to put the food down first because I can't work the steps when I'm high. And then get into action um, right away. And um, I started working on, you know, my fourth step. And um, it was pretty big. <laughs> I, did, I had done four steps um, in the past. Um, but I, I built up a lot of resentment over those three and a half years in relapse. Um, you know, and, and those resentments, they 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 are a barrier between me and my higher power. I I can't connect with that power when I am surrounded by self pity and resentment. And I got to tell you, I was oozing with self pity. Look at me, poor me. Um, you know, I used to sit there as I was eating, and God, why have you forsaken? You know, all my drama. God, why have you forsaken me? Why why you know why aren't you helping me? Um, when God was there the entire time, I just couldn't connect. I couldn't connect because of all this crap, um, all this crap surrounding me, all this crap standing in the way, my selfishness. You know, like it, it tells us in the big book on page 62, selfishness, self-centeredness, that we think is the root of our troubles. Driven by a hundred forms of fear, delusion, self-seeking, self-pity. We step on the toes of our fellows and they retaliate. I was a walking ooze of self-pity and a victim. I had to get rid of that selfishness. Um, and um, I had to turn to, you know, God. And I had to do the work. And, you know, that's like my story today. You know, I'm anxious, something you know, um, someone looks at me the wrong way, something happens, I'm resentful, I have to pause, I have to pray, I have to ask God for help, and then I've got to get to work. This isn't, you know, um, the miracle for me didn't happen sitting on the couch, God didn't, like, knock the food out of my hand. The miracle happened when I was able to surrender, ask God for direction, and the direction was get a sponsor and work these steps like your life depends upon it because it does. And then these steps, these 12 wonderful, amazing steps that are saving my life, um, you know, enable me to have that spiritual awakening, that slow and steady spiritual awakening, which enables me to be changed. I'm not changing myself. It's being done to me. It's being done for me. But I have to take action. And that, that first um, big action is in working my fourth step. And I think that the power for me in working a fourth step, and again, this is not a fourth step, and this is my experience and my understanding. This, and what it you know, tells us in this book, a fourth step is not a year-long process. It took me about three weeks, three weeks to finish my fourth step, and then immediately set up time to give it to my sponsor. But in my fourth step this time around, I could see the victim mentality. I could see my part. And you know what? 
when I can see my part in a resentment or in a problem, that is empowering because I can't change you. I can't fix what, what you're doing that is, is bothering me, um, whatever it is. But I can, I can, if I can see my part, I can do it differently. I can ask God to be changed and then take the action to make that change. So doing a fourth step this time around, it, it brought me from being a victim to, to someone who can take action. And, you know, that was the most amazing thing for me, um, to get out of that victim mentality, to get out of my sickness. Um, to get out of the bondage, you know, that was keeping me stuck in the disease. Um, and, you know, I love the fourth step prayer um, where, you know, when I'm looking at these resentments and I'm working on my fourth step, and even today, you know, when I'm feeling resentful, I have to ask God to, and on page 67, help God to show that person the same tolerance, pity, and patience that I would cheerfully grant a sick friend. When a person offends me, I have to say to myself, this is a sick man. How can I be helpful to him? God save me from being angry. Thy will be done. And it's funny because I've written in my book, practice, practice, practice. Because, you know, what I've learned is that this working this step is, it's practice. I don't do it perfectly. Um, You know, I make mistakes. I get I get um, lazy or, you know, again, life can get really busy really quickly. And by the grace of God, you know, I'm given that discernment, wait a second, and I can get back on the path and I can move forward again. It's not like, you know, yay, I'm in recovery and everything's perfect and I work the steps perfectly and I always do A, B, and C. Mm -mm. That hasn't been my experience. I will never graduate from from the level of, of being human. Um, I'm human. I make mistakes. My character defects flare up, but I have a program to work that helps me get back on the path and move forward. I'm never going to be, you know, relieved of those character defects. Um, some get better, some do go away, but there's, you know, I'm, I'm a human. Um, I'm never going to be perfect. And so, you know, then I, we did my fifth step right away. Um, and, um, you know, it's one thing to write it and it's another thing to share it, to say it out loud in front of God and another person to read those things. Um, I don't know. There's something about that level of intimacy with another human being, um, especially for me who had so much fear of you knowing who I am because you're not going to want me if you know who I am and, always being the chameleon and trying to figure out what you want and becoming what you want. Cause I had such a need to be loved. I had such, I've got a hole, um, God sized hole, um, that I looked for anything to fill a man, a job, um, the right clothes. Um, you know, if only, if only I could be, I was a size two, my life would be perfect. It's all a bunch of bullshit. Um, the only thing that can fill that hole is God. And so to share my deepest, darkest secrets um, with another human, with another person, and to trust them and to trust God 
it's a, it's, it was a spiritual, um, it was a spiritual experience. Um, and then, you know, it's funny because there's only two paragraphs in the big book that talk about step six and seven, but I got to tell you, this is where I do most of the work today. Um, you know, and of course I live in steps 10, 11, and 12, but my character defects drive most of my 10 step work and they come out in glaring, you know, technicolor <laughs> when I'm doing my nightly review, which is my 11 step. Um, and, you know, again, um, I am never going to be rid of these character defects. But the really, the really cool thing is, is today I see them. I'm aware. And um, just recently, a, a couple weeks ago, um, and let me just check and see how I'm doing with time. Okay. Um, just a couple weeks ago, um, we, uh, we sold our house and we had to get stuff out of, um, we're clearing out stuff. There's still a lot of stuff. It sold the house, got rid of a storage unit trying to clear stuff. I had a ton of garbage. I had all this garbage in my car. And if I didn't get the garbage out, I couldn't park my car in the garage. And so what was my answer? Uh, my answer was, okay, there's a dumpster behind the CVS and I could go dump the garbage in the, in the dumpster in the CVS. And I'm driving to the, to the, to the CVS and that voice says to me, you can't do that. It's not your dumpster. You can't do that. And I keep driving. And then the little voice says, Stephanie, this is wrong. You're probably going to have to make an amends for this. This is, turn around, drive back. I chose not to listen to that voice. So I get there, you know, I empty everything out. I screech away because I'm scared I'm going to get caught. And I'm driving back and all I can think about was that was wrong. Why did you do that? That was wrong. That wasn't okay. Well, um, yesterday um, I got to make an amends. Um, and I say got to because this isn't this is bothering me. Um, and I'm bringing this up because, you know, here I am a year and nine months in recovery, work the steps, living in 10, 11, and 12. And I'm like throwing stuff in the dumpster behind the CVS. You know, <laughs> so my husband, we were like Bonnie and Clyde, you know, hurry up, ah, you know, um, in recovery, in recovery. And it's, 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 it's embarrassing and I can laugh at myself, but, um, so I had to go. So these, so the character defects pop up, you know, selfishness. Um, I was inconsiderate. It was dishonest. Um, so I, I, I go into, I go to CVS and the grocery store next door and I talk to the both managers and, you know, can I make restitution? Um, you know, I need to make an amends. I dumped trash in your dumpster illegally. Um, I can't imagine the hardship it must have caused you because, you know, you don't have a lot of space in the dumpster. And both managers were like, oh, well, you know, amazing, gracious. Oh, thank you for coming in. It's, it's no problem. Yes, it is, it is a problem when people do that. But thank you so much for coming in. And when I left those Doors, both times when I walked out, it was like this feeling of relief. Not because they said, oh, it's okay, but because I could look in the mirror again. Because guess what? I felt, I knew it was wrong. That, that you know, what I had done was wrong. And it wasn't, making that amends wasn't you know, I mean, I was, I was fearful. They were going to say, yes, you know, you owe us 50 bucks. I brought money just in case because I didn't know what was going to happen. But I felt 
clean. You know, I felt closer to my God, to my higher power. And you know, this really interesting thing, I've been in some fear yesterday about, you know, speaking this morning, of course, because, you know, selfishness crops back in. Oh, gosh, you know, what are they going to think of me? And what if I say the wrong thing? Again, character defect, selfishness, right? I walked, I, I walked out, I drove home, and the fear was gone. I knew. I'm driving, and, and I was thinking, this isn't about me, God. This is about you. This is about the newcomer. And the fear was gone. You know, yeah, I was a little nervous this morning, but the fear was gone. And that's how it's been, working these steps. I take the action, and then I am provided for. Things are lifted. It's, it's like, it's an amazing miracle. It's freedom. And, you know, so like I said, I, I, I live in 10, 11, and 12. Um, when, when resentment or fear or something crops up during the day, i got to pick up the phone immediately. Um, there seems to be this misconception out there that a 10 step is what you do at the end of the night. That's not what the big book says. The big book says that we have to be rid of that resentment right away, immediately. Okay. A 10 step can be done throughout the day, all day. I can't wait till the end of the day for, to, to tell someone, I got to pick up the phone. Okay. Here's what happened. Um, here's why I'm resentful. Here's my part. You know, here's how what it affected. Um, here's the character defect. And it's a quick, it could be like, it could be a five minute call. But I've got to, I can't afford for that resentment to, to block me from my higher power where I'm getting the power to be recovered on a daily basis. And then at the end of the night, I do my nightly review, which is my part of my step 11. And I look at my day and, you know, and I, I, I did my, nightly review last night. Um, you know, I do it, I do it every night and I look at how was I resentful? Was I selfish? And this is right out of the book. Where was I dishonest? Was I afraid? And you know, I don't know, most days there's something on here because again, I will never graduate from, you know, the level of being a human being. I'll have selfish thoughts, dishonest thoughts. My disease still lies to me at times, but today the difference is I can see it I can identify it. I can talk to someone about it. And then when I'm done with that, I can go find someone to help. You know, like Bill W. in that hotel lobby, is, when he was traveling, you know, he knew if he, if he went into the bar he was going to drink or he could find someone to help. And, you know, I can do this work, but then I got to go find someone to help. You know, our real purpose is to fit ourselves to be of maximum service to God and the people about us. So, I do a 10-step, I find someone to help. I do my nightly review, what am I going to do differently tomorrow? Um, I wake up in the morning, I do my spiritual work, and I've got to meditate. I've got to, you know, it says in the book, upon awakening, we ask God. So the minute I wake up, okay, God, what's the day going to look like? What are we doing today? What would you have me do? Who would you have me be? Who would you have me help? Thank you, God. Thy will not mine be done. And then I can get on with my day. And then, you know, step 12, I, again, I've got to give this back. I don't get to keep this. You know, in all my selfishness, um, you know, I, <laughs> in all my selfishness, I don't, always want to, I don't always want to be in service. And that's the truth. I don't always want to pick up that phone. I don't, I don't 
always want to, you know, take the time away from what selfishly I, I believe is important to me to go help you. But the crazy thing is I do it and I feel better. And it's just crazy. So what is my life like today? Um, like I said, I live in 10, 11, and 12. Um, after being in the hospital um, and getting abstinent on October 31st of 2015, um, I was on disability for a couple of months. I needed outside help. Um, I threw myself into the program, worked the steps, as I've already outlined. And I decided that um, I was not going to go back to that to that career, um, and um, I asked God what God would have me do, um, and, you know, my career had defined me, the title, the position, the money, the house, the car, the all the things I had worked for. I had been in um, the same career for 25 years. I had reached that executive level that I thought was everything that I was taught throughout my life. Success is this. And somehow, you know, I was somehow, I say somehow, you know, uh, the power of, of God, um, I didn't go back. Um, I've always had a dream of going to school. Um, I didn't go to college because I had my oldest daughter when I was 18. Um, and I had to support my family. And I was able to achieve some, some pretty amazing things without going to, to, to school. But I always had that chip on my shoulder. I always wanted to go to college. And, um, you know, for the last few years of um, my professional life, I had always had this tugging feeling, this nagging feeling I should be doing something else. And the, my most favorite part of doing my job was when the one-on-one -on -one interaction when I was able to help people or listen to their problem or whatever it was. And so my, my dream was um, to go back to school and to be a therapist and um, to work with adolescents, to work with kids who struggle with, um, you know, addiction. And um, so I didn't go back. I, uh, and here's the funny thing. I, I you know, it has so been um, reliance on God and trust and, you know, um, doing it anyways. And, 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 I was, I remember when I made the decision and I registered for school and I, you know, I felt that, <gasps> that fear. Oh my God. Oh my God. What am I doing? Do it anyways. Click on the computer, register for school. My first day of school, I, you know, here's this, this 49 year old woman walking into a classroom, the fear again. Oh God. Oh God. Uh, what's this going to be? What's it going to be like? Just walk into the classroom, Stephanie. Just go, honey. It's okay. I walked into the classroom. Oh, wow. This is amazing, you know. Um, first day of my internship. Oh my God! Oh my God! What is this going to be like, God? Oh my God! I can't do this. Oh my God! Just walk in, Steffi. I've got you. It's going to be okay. I walk in. Oh wow! This is amazing. I got to um, intern with, in a juvenile detention center for boys. It was the most amazing experience. But it's been. That's how it's been. I'm scared, God. Okay, I'll do it anyways. Okay, I trust you. And even when I don't trust God, I say it anyways. And I do it anyways. So I'm uh, two years into school. Um, I'm working part-time um, in a transitional living home for young girls. I remember the first day of work, same thing. Oh, my God, oh, my God, just walk in the door. 
I've got you. It's going to be okay. Um, financially, um, we had to sell our house. I was the main breadwinner in my family. And, um, you know, after we burnt through this, our savings, um, we found that we, we couldn't afford our house anymore. And, um, oh, God, oh, God, I can't believe this. I'm selling my house. What have I done? Oh, my God. It's okay, honey. It's all right. I've got you. I'm providing for you. I'm taking care of you. It's okay. Sold the house a few weeks ago and this huge sense of relief. Um, I am different. I am changed. I am no longer that woman scared for you to know who she is, binging uncontrollably on a couch. I am free. Um, As long as I do these things, as long as I work these steps, as long as I trust in a power greater than myself and take action, as long as I do those things and don't take that first bite, you know, and of course I do all those things, so I don't take that first bite. As long as I do that, I am free. I am recovered. You know, I am not the same woman that I was two years ago. My relationships with my daughters, I have relationships with my daughters. I'm about to become a grandmother in three weeks. And again, oh my gosh, oh my gosh, God, it's okay, honey, I've got you. Um, my oldest daughter, um, you know, she's trying to get pregnant so I could be a grandmother twice. But they call me. They call me to tell me what they're, you know, share the good things that happened, to share, you know, they call when they're having a problem. They call me. And the craziest thing is I pick up the phone. The relationship with my husband is better than it's ever been. We've been married for eight years, and um, we are both in recovery today. Um, he's abstinent. Um, he's working a program. I'm working a program. It's a miracle. It's a miracle. And if you're new or if you're struggling, keep coming back. It really does work. These 12 steps, they are the only answer that I have ever found to this disease. So I, I urge you just, just keep coming back. The miracle will happen. It happened for me. It will happen for you. And um, with that, um, you know, thank you so much again for letting me be um, of service this morning and letting me share. And um, I'll I'll give out my phone number. Um, My phone number is um, 714-272-5820. And again, I'm I'm in Pacific time. And um, with that, that, I'll pass. Thank you so much, Stephanie, for sharing your remarkable transformation as a result of these 12 steps. Thank you for such a message of hope and possibility. We'll transition now to a question and answer segment. If you have a question for Stephanie, you'll need to press star 1 to unmute to identify yourself, please. Hi, this is Jeannie from Massachusetts. Jeannie. Andrew, okay. I didn't catch the name. Cynthia C. from Massachusetts. Cynthia C., thank you. Angela P. Angela P. Gina R. Can you announce Stephanie's number again, too? I will do that. Toby W. Toby W. Okay. Stephanie's uh, number, 714-272-582. Two zero. All right, let's start our questions with Jeannie, please. 
Oh, um, Leah, thank you. You answered my question. I just wanted to get her phone number, so thank you. But thank you so much for the amazing story. I identified with so many things, and I really appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks, Jeannie. Cynthia C. Thanks. This is Cynthia C. Stephanie, thank you so very, very much for your share. I related to so much of it, it was actually painful. So thank you. I'm four months abstinent. I, um, working the steps, um, made some amends, uh, doing many, many 10 steps a day. Um, I'm having a struggle at work with somebody who's, um, I think, is, you know, she's out, she's gunning for me. And I'm sure some of that has to do with um, my character defects. I will lay full ownership to that, but it's, she's also another sick human being. And, and I guess I was thinking as I want to figure out how to advocate for myself, that maybe I need to make an amends at work. Um, And I guess you've talked about issues at work and I guess I'm wondering, could you talk a little bit about your amends at work? Um, and how you've worked that. I've been sort of doing a living amend, so I'd like to hear more of that from you if you could speak to that. Thank you very much. Sure, sure. Um, yeah, making amends at work. So the last, uh, the last job that I was at before I left, um, I was in relapse, so I wasn't making any amends at that time. Um, but when I worked, you know, through the steps this time, my sponsor helped me determine which which amends because we don't make an amends if it's going to cause more harm, right? So I really had to look at, um, you know, where it made sense, um, where I wasn't going to do any additional harm, um, you know, who had I harmed, you know, during that time. And it was a little different for me because when I did make those amends, I didn't have to work with those folks anymore because I, I didn't go back. Um, but here, here's, here's what I do know, and in my experience previously with making amends at work, um, if I don't make, if I if I owe someone amends and I don't make that amends, I'm not able to look them in the eye. I'm feeling resentful at work, and that resentment gets in the way of me being able to do my job. Okay. Now, if the amends is going to cause harm to my ability to support my family, I would make that amends in, in, you know, a different way. And I'll give you an example. Um, Many, many years ago, I stole money from an employer and I worked for that employer for 25 years. Um, And it would have caused me to lose my job, even though I had stolen the money many, many years ago. My sponsor at the time, and I decided I was going to make a, um, I was going to pay that money back through um, giving money to a charity. And that's how, and I still pay $25 a month to the Boys and Girls Club um, to pay back that, um, you know, the money that I stole many, many years ago. So I'm not sure if I'm answering your, your question, but I do know that when I have made an amends um, at work, it's enabled me it's changed my attitude about the job and about the person that I made the amends to. I become free of, um, you know, that resentment or that unease. I don't know if that helps. But thank you for the question. (laughs) 
Yes, thank you, Cynthia C. Angela P., your turn. Star one to unmute, Angela P. Okay, thank you. I thought I was unmuted. Hi, um, this is Angela P. from Washington State. Thank you so much, Stephanie. That was just so great. And um, I uh, wrote down lots of questions. And I, I think what it's ending, so my question ends up being that, um, you know, when I have, um, when my serenity breaks like it did last night um, and I was, you know, somebody ate the thing I was trying to protect because I had committed it and uh, <laughs> and uh, I was getting so upset I had to go to the store because I didn't I was too afraid to call in you know a change and it's so silly but um, I you know just it was that break in the, my serenity I'm like how, what happened you know and a lot of times I feel like I have to do more and try harder and try harder and so I've been taking on more service and thinking that that's going to help, and um, but I feel like maybe I'm taking on too much service. So I'm just curious, like, what service looks like for you, and what um, you do, because it sounds like you have also have things pop up. It's not like you have perfect serenity 100% of the day every day, right? <laughs> so, <laughs> like, what's that? Where does that come from? This like, oh, I've just got to work harder at this program, you know. <laughs> Oh, gosh, that's so funny. Um, yeah, you know, I wish I could say it's perfect serenity all the time. And it's just not. That's just not my story. Um, you know, that, that selfishness creeps up. And um, here's, here's what my sponsor and I have talked about. You know, I, I do service at the intergroup level. Um, and I did service recently, a couple months ago, helping out on a convention. And I found that um, we, we definitely need um, service at that higher level, and that's great, but I wasn't working as much with newcomers. And I need to be giving back and doing service with newcomers, and, um, you know, I mean, that's what it, it, it tells us in the book. We, we, we've got to give back. Um, so I try and balance it a little more between, um, yes, I can help out at the intergroup level, but I need to be talking to a newcomer every day because that's, that's where, you know, um, selfishly, that's where my program um, gets stronger and my serenity level gets stronger. So like when, when crap pops up and I'm feeling resentful and I do a 10 step, you know, I need to call a newcomer. I need to call someone who's struggling. That's the service work that, you know, helps me connect um, with my higher power. And that's when I feel the relief. That's when, um, you know, my, the serenity comes back. And sometimes it doesn't come back right away. But, the, you know, the work with that newcomer, that type of service is what really feeds my program and my level of peace and serenity. And I also wanted to say, too, more isn't always better. You know, like, like you, like when I get in that frenzy of I've got to do this and I've got to do that, that's when, you know what, I need to pause. And I need to pause and I need to ask God for the right thought and the right action. You know, like it tells us in the book, it tells us um, pause when agitated, ask for the right thought, the right action. So when my serenity, you know, when I'm like everyone's bugging me, my husband's, you know, I mean, no one's changing. It's me. I'm, I'm 
there's, there's a gap in my spiritual connection. I need to pause and I need to ask God what to do. And quite often when I do that, what I hear is, relax, just be, you know, just be with me for a few minutes. I often hear that because I can get in such a frenzy. It's, it's old behavior, the frenzy of, you know, it's like ping, 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 ping. You got to find someone else. Got to do this. Gotta, da, 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 da. No, just sit quietly. Ask for the right thought, the right action. Okay. Then we're in much less danger of, you know, fear and, and bad decisions and, you know, um, the, the feeling of, you know, restlessness and discontent. I've got to pause, ask God, and then maybe less is more. Maybe, you know, just take it easy. Okay. And then I follow the direction of my higher power. Does that make sense? Yeah. Thank you so much. It makes sure. so much sense. Thanks, Angela P. Gina R., star one to unmute. Good morning, Leah. Um, this is Gina R., uh, gratefully recovered from a seemingly hopeless state of mind and body in Arizona. And Stephanie, thank you so much for your very poignant um, but also hope-filled share. The part I related to, and I'd like for you to maybe expand on a little bit more, um, as you were describing what you were doing in your previous career, it just seemed like you were being driven by self-propulsion. Mm-hmm. And I'm wondering, um, obviously you had the incident where you ended up in the hospital, but um, when did you really understand that you could let go of that? Because that's what I'm in the middle of right now. I've let go of so many things that um, I thought I needed. And while I feel a sense of freedom, um, I tell people that I feel like I am in free fall. And hmm. many days it feels very um, comforting, like um, I even imagine myself being like a feather on the breath of God, just kind of floating through the air. And then sometimes that feather gets caught up in a wind eddy and it's spiraling down to the ground really fast. And um, anyway, if you could just describe kind of that process and how you um, work with your higher power on navigating through that, that would be helpful for me. Yeah, no, thanks for the question, Gina. Um, uh, or the, the to, to clarify or talk a little more about that. Um, oh, gosh. It, first of all, um, I was terrified even not going back to work, even being on disability. I had never been on disability in my, you know, I, I have worked, I did tassel corn when I was 15. You know, I always wanted, I was always driven to make money, to make my own way. I always wanted, you know, success, success, got, you know, got, got to succeed. Even in school, I struggle with that. If I don't get an A, it's like the end of the world. Oh my God. You know, um, because I, I am still very driven. Um, but, I knew that if I kept doing what I was doing, I was going, I mean, I was clear that everything had to change. It was very clear to me. And like you described, I often describe it as jumping off a cliff and knowing that my higher power is going to catch me. I keep jumping off the cliff. Okay, do this. Okay, okay, God. All right. And, you know, it's even when I don't, even in that fear when I'm like, I don't know, I don't know, I don't know. 
oh, fine, I trust you. And then I, I, I heard a speaker say this, pray and act as if your prayer has been answered. And I thought, God, that is such a simple thing. Pray and act like, so I trust you, God. And I say that even when I don't. And I just jump off that cliff. But I, I, I had been unhappy in that world. I knew I was like a square peg in a round hole. I knew that um, it wasn't what I wanted to do and it wasn't where I wanted to be. So I think part of me was um, clear on that, but it was the fear of who would I be? What, what was going to happen to me? How, who would I be if I wasn't this person, you know? And I, I just keep jumping off the cliff and I just keep praying. And my sponsor, who is very, very spiritual, um, love her. Oh, my God. Just want to say that out loud. But, um, you know, she always challenges me. Did you pray about it? Did you pray about it? Are you meditating? Did you take it into meditation? And so, you know, I ask God. And then it's funny because, like, and I'll give an example. Two weeks ago in my part-time job, I got my certification to, um, to be um, a counselor and I'm not doing that in my current job. And I'm like, God, what do you want me to do here? Do you want me to stay here? Should I, should I quit? Should I find another job? And then like, I don't know, 30 minutes later, something popped up where they were going to teach me something else. And I'm like, Oh, that's weird. And I wanted to take a day off, but I couldn't get coverage. So I'm like, God, should I quit? And all of a sudden the phone rang and someone called and said, I can cover your ship. Okay, God, you want me to stay here? So it's kind of like that. I pray, I meditate, and I wait for direction, okay? And it doesn't, it's not always what I want it to be, believe me. (laughs) And then I trust. And if I don't trust, I act as if I trust. And that's kind of the process that I go through. But my great ideas, I always run by my sponsor, I run by a fellow, um, and I take it into prayer and meditation. So, thank you. Sure. Thanks, Gina R. Toby W. Star one to unmute. Uh, good morning, everybody. My name is Toby W. And I'm an addict, food addict. Um, Stephanie, I I've been in OA in various ways for total of 24 years and I've heard many stories where I could identify pieces but I felt 90% of your story I sat here and I said oh my god um, that is me Um, I feel like I have so many questions that I don't even know where to begin, but I'm going to ask one, and um, and I'm going to ask, hopefully, that I can call you and uh, talk to you about some of the others. With the grace, by the grace of God, after nine, ten months of relapse, uh, today, with the help of God, is ten days. Yay! And I, thank you. Thank you, God. And I know I have to do the steps again. I've done thorough step in the past. And I'm sure I have resentments. 
And some of them are the old resentments that I did the steps and they keep coming back. And one of the questions is, do they ever go away? You know, it's funny that that you're asking that question because I was actually doing my reading and writing on resentment um, resentments this morning. And my experience with that has been the resentment is relieved if I pray for it. If I pray, if I pray for that person every day and I pray to be relieved of that resentment every day, you know, um, at some point the resentment is relieved. Um, you know, it. Like the, it says on page 67, the um, resentment prayer, you know, we ask God to help us show the same tolerance, pity, patience that we would cheerfully grant a sick friend. When a person offends us, we say to ourselves, Mm -hmm. sick man, how can I be helpful? So if I pray for that person and I pray this prayer, and maybe I need to make an amends to that person. You know, I had a resentment at my ex, my um, ex-husband for like, I don't know, 15 years, and I refused to make an amends to him um, until this last time through the steps. And as soon as I made that amends to him, the resentment was lifted. So it tells us in the book what to, I mean, what to do and in my experience, those resentments, sometimes I got to pray for that person for more than two weeks. Maybe it's three weeks. Maybe it's four weeks. But at some point, that resentment is always lifted for me. So that's my experience with that. Uh, uh, one more quick question. Maybe it won't be. It's a quick question. I don't know if it'll be a quick answer. Have you ever written about resenting yourself? Um, hmm, yeah, no. <laughs> um, no, I, you know, I've I've heard different people say different things about that. I've heard people you know, say that they put themselves on their, their fourth step. That is not, um, not what I was taught to do. Um, my sponsor was very clear with me that, um, you know, um, that does not belong on my, on my inventory, um, that I'm just looking at the resentments that I have with, you know, people, places, institutions, and I'm addressing those. That, that, you know, I don't go on my, I don't make an amends to myself and, um, you know, I don't, mm, I don't address those resentments because really, you know, the, the, the only thing that, I mean, yeah, I couldn't look myself in the mirror at some of the, at some of my behaviors, but it tells us in the book, we, we stay away from morbid self-reflection. You know what I mean? So even when I'm, I'm looking at, my past behaviors, it is selfish of me to harp on, well, I can't believe I did that. Or that's a lot of self-pity and, and, you know, continuing to make myself out to be a victim of sorts. So I focus on, you know, how, okay, it's like taking that, um, that inventory. Okay, what did I do? All right, now what do I do with it now? Do I need to make an amends? A physical amends? Do I need to make a um, Do I need to make a living amends? Do I need to change you know, behavior? What, what, what do I need to do with that? But I look at it objectively. I don't harp on 
you know, being a victim or um, I can't believe I did that. That's that old thinking and old behavior. It's like, okay, here's what I did. Even with the dumpster thing, when I dumped the trash in the dumpster, I didn't harp on the fact that I can't believe I did that. Oh my God, I'm terrible. I'm not recovered. Oh my God, what's going to happen next? Those are all, that's all a lot of selfishness. Thinking about me. Okay, this is what I did. This is how I need to fix it. Here you go, God, it's yours. I'm going to move on. Who can I help? That make, hopefully that makes sense. I don't, I don't yes, know if I completely yes. answered your question. It helps a lot. And thank you okay. very much. Um, sure. I appreciate it. Bye-bye. Thank you, Toby W. All right. Who else has a question for Stephanie this morning? This will be our final invitation for questions. Sir, one time. Hello. Hi, I'm Sarah S. I have a question. Sarah S. One moment. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Questions for our speaker, Stephanie. Great opportunity. Lisa J.R. Lisa J.R. Anyone else? What is Stephanie's? And last initial? L. Stephanie L. Okay, I guess all minds are cleared. Let's go to Sarah S. for a question. Yes, hi. Um, I'm Sarah S. I'm a compulsive overeater. Thank you, Stephanie. You said something so important. Uh, you said, I pray, I trust, I always don't get what I want, and I act as if. Was that the order you said that in? Because that is very powerful for me. Yeah, I pray, yes. I pray, I trust, I tr- act as if God has, you know, if my prayer has been answered, which like such a simple thing. I, when that speaker said that, I was just like, oh my God, that makes such sense. Yeah, that's the order. Oh, pray, pray first, ask for the right thought, the right action. All right, I trust you, God. Take action as if, yes. Yeah, if I don't get what I want, I just, I act as if. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> thank, thank you very much. I'm writing that down on a card. Thank you. Sure. Thank you. Thanks for the question. Final question for the day comes from Lisa J.R. Good morning, everybody, and thank you so much for your wonderful, wonderful share. I'm Lisa J.R. from uh, Recovered um, Just for Today, Compulsive Overeater from Baltimore. Um, I have a question regarding sponsorship. I sponsor in a sense that um, when I talk to somebody about food, Um, I make it very clear I'm not a professional nutritionist, but it's imperative that they put their alcohol down, um, their alcohol foods down. And I constantly run into an issue with sponsees that once they get through it, they they do the flip side of the coin often, um, whereas you were out of control at one point and then suddenly you're micromanaging every um, green bean and everything to the point that it becomes an equal obsession um, 
in sometimes a healthy way and sometimes a very unhealthy way. How do you derail your sponsees from that thinking and keep them on the, the, the road to recovery, um, the, the road with uh, recovered people? I appreciate your answer. Just to clarify, so is your question, how do you help a sponsee who's going from one extreme to the other? Is that? Well, yes, and how do you keep them centered on the spiritual aspect of the program as opposed to the micromanaging of the food? I, I realize, you know, they have to put their alcohol foods down yeah. um, and their alcohol behaviors down. But, you know, the control freak in all of us wants to get really crazy sometimes. And that, that's, you know, kind of my question. Yeah. So the woman I sponsor, um, I require them to go to a nutritionist and get a food plan. I never tell anybody what to eat. Um, just like, you know, I don't put together my own food plan and my sponsor didn't tell me. Um, but I do, and I, you know, my sponsees do weigh and measure everything that goes in their mouth. And, and if, if something changes, we don't make the decisions, um, on my own. Like, um, you know, if a tomato goes bad and I committed that, I, I call someone else and, you know, they help me make that decision because, um, you know, um, because I can't, I can't live in any gray at all with my food. So, you know, it is, I do work a weighed and measured food plan. My my sponsors work a committed weighed and measured food plan also. Um, and I find, and my sponsor, the people I work with and the, you know, the people I talk to, um, on a daily basis is there's a great tremendous amount of freedom with, you know, the food is down. It's never, it's never a question or concern. I've committed it. It's weighed and measured. Now I can go on, you know, my food is gray. My life is technicolor versus technicolor food. You know, I have a gray life or whatever. I'm sure we've all heard that one before, but, um, um, you know, I haven't really, um, when I do have someone who's like more concerned with, um, the weight loss and maybe my food plan should change a little bit cause I want to lose weight faster. You know, there is where I focus with them because I really, we really don't have that issue because it is such a structured and disciplined weight and measured way of putting the food down. You know, I really haven't had that issue. Um, so, you know, I really can't talk to that. Um, it's more with my sponsees about, you know, trusting God with the weight loss. Um, you know, just eat what you've committed and just move on and get into the steps. We put the food down, we weigh and measure so we can get into the steps. And that's really where I focus them. Um, so... You know, I'm not sure if that helps. It, it did. Thank you so much. Thank you, Lisa Jr. Thanks to everybody who posed questions this morning. And, of course, thank you, Stephanie L., for your generous spirit this morning, sharing your miraculous transformation as a result of this work, the 12 Steps, the Program of Recovery. The share ID for today, 10356, that's 10,356. 
And we'll now close from page 164, A Vision for You. Our book is meant to be suggestive only. We realize we know only a little. God will constantly disclose more to you and to us. Ask him in your morning meditation what you can do each day for the man who is still sick. The answers will come if your own house is in order. But obviously you cannot transmit something you haven't got. See to it that your relationship with him is right and great events will come to pass for you and countless others. This is the great fact for us. Abandon yourself to God as you understand God. Admit your faults to him and to your fellows. Clear away the wreckage of your past. Give freely of what you find and join us. We shall be with you in the fellowship of the Spirit, and you will surely meet some of us as you trudge the road of happy destiny. May God bless you and keep you until then.